Itak Dale, a podcast about Poland from Indiana University's Polish Studies Center. I'm Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, your host. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Dunn, and my guest today is Michal Murowski, who is an anthropologist of architecture and of cities based at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. His latest book is The Palace Complex, a Stalinist skyscraper, capitalist Warsaw, and a city transfixed, which just came out this year from uh, IU Press. And the book looks at Warsaw's obsession with the very iconic palace of culture and science. Um, I read the book and was, I had it on pre-order for about wow. six months, Michal. I've been waiting for it for ages and I was just transfixed. Um, the book asks why, despite the fact that virtually everyone agrees on how ugly this building is and how much it re represents a form of political domination that they hate, the building has been surprisingly resistant to being torn down. Welcome, Michal Morawski. Thank you very much, um, Elizabeth, uh, for, for inviting me. And it's, yeah, it's super exciting to, to have this conversation with you. And, you know, you're certainly somebody whose who's, um, responses to the book I'm particularly uh, keen to, 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 to respond to. So, I mean, the, the, also just one very briefly, the ugliness thing, uh, this is something that people have difficulty with because people are reluctant to say that it's beautiful. People are reluctant to say that it's ugly. They never know whether it's ugly or, or beautiful. And I'm in the same, I'm in the same position. So. Well, we'll, we'll be interested to uh, think about that a little bit. Maybe you can start um, for, for, I cannot believe that anyone interested in Poland has not seen the building, but just to give us a basis, why don't you start by describing it and talking a little bit about how it came to be? Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's, it is hard to describe because um, it is a weird and unusual building. I suppose um, it does look, especially from a distance, not dissimilar to, I don't know whether you would agree, but it doesn't look too dissimilar to uh, Chicago or uh, New York kind of 1930s skyscraper along the lines of the uh, Empire State Building or the Chicago Tribune Building. Uh, it's certainly... Uh, the case that the designers of these um, Stalinist towers were inspired um, um, positively or negatively by American skyscraper architecture of the 1930s. So it's also important to emphasize that it's one of, it's one of several towers of its kind. Um, in Moscow, there were seven similar high-rise towers built in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Uh, and Warsaw, the Warsaw Palace of Culture is a kind of sibling. Uh, in Moscow, the Seven Towers are called the Seven Sisters, and the, the Warsaw, what Russians call the, the Warsaw Tower, the kind of eighth sister of the of the Moscow Tower. So it's, it sort of looks like one of the like a like a high rise from the 1930s in New York or Chicago, but it's sort of different in that it's rather than being packed into a into a, into a dense city grid. Uh, and rather be, rather than being tall in order to maxi maximize um, rental income from from the tenants of the building it 's surrounded by empty space so it 's surrounded by this kind of parade ground which is there to emphasize partly that it 's not tall in order to make a profit it 's tall for it 's tall for other reasons for for socialist reasons 
and it's more bulky. It's it's wider. It's broader uh, and more sprawling than a than um, than a kind of North American uh, high-rise tower. Um, and it contains a completely different um, series, more, much more public series of, of functions. It's um, is it its height or the fact that it's surrounded by nothingness that makes it so iconic? Like, what is it about the yeah. architecture of it that makes it? dominate the landscape in the way that it does yeah i mean i don't i think um i th think i mean this is a question that i suppose i was trying to get my informants to answer and they would all answer it differently it's it's high in the context of warsaw is is um in, in, in at the time of its construction was um fantastical so you know it was completed in 1955 when warsaw was still mostly um, a sea of, of rubble and ruins. Um, so it was really in, at the time of its construction, this kind of gleaming um, tower uh, surrounded by, by destruction and emptiness. And then its, its dominance was, was certainly a question of height, uh, as well as just the fact that it, there was nothing else around it. Now, now there are, uh, well, as, I'm sh as, as you noticed during your trips to Poland in the in the 90s there were there were a series of towers that already began to be built of not dissimilar height not much shorter shorter to it in the 1980s and 1990s and now actually the the first building that will be taller than the palace of culture is almost um completed i think it's i think it's reached an equivalent height to the palace of culture this year but still, the Palace of Culture continues to continues to kind of be the to be much more impressive than all of these other than, than all of these other buildings, despite not being of radically different height. So I think it's the fact that it looks so. Uh, partly, it's a question of the fact that it looks so alien in the context of Warsaw. It's so obviously a building that looks Russian or that looks Soviet or perhaps to some extent North American that renders it just bizarre and weird in the, in the context of, of Warsaw. And it's the fact that actually all of these other tall buildings that are almost as high or now even as high as the Palace of Culture are only really there because the palace got there in the first place and they're all very evidently referring to it. They're all trying to compete with it or to make some, some, some sort of counter statement to it. So it's still this object that, that sort of defines the, the center of the city and everything else that's around it, even though there is no longer nothingness. The fact that all of these buildings are in conversation with it and in a kind of subordinate conversation to it actually maybe emphasizes its, its, its dominance even more so than, uh, than, uh, than, than the nothingness which was previously there. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that's really interesting in your book is that you show the way that the every other building in Warsaw has to refer to the Palace of Culture, but it refers only to itself or to Moscow. It doesn't refer mm. to its surroundings at all. And in that sense, it always looks like a spaceship that just landed in the middle of a parade ground. You argue that although the palace represents a socialist regime that collapsed, the palace itself continues to prosper. Um, you write in your book, the extent to which capitalist Warsaw remains obsessed with the palace of culture testifies, in other words, to the remarkable endurance and success of the economic, aesthetic, ideological, and social engineering vision designed into the palace during the 1950s. This is 
obviously a really controversial statement, particularly given the anti-socialist tenor of Polish politics over the last 30 years. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by this? What, what do you um, mean when you say that it's the project that gave birth to it is still, is designed into it and still a part of what the palace broadcasts? Um, yeah, I mean, this is, uh... This, this is a question that the answer to this question probably has to be um, dynamic in a, in a way because it's even those, I think those, what I mean by that now, because I sort of still um, stick by what I wrote back when I wrote the book, but it means something, but I mean it in a slightly different way to, to how I meant it then, because the character of the sort of anti-socialism in Polish politics has changed in the, in the, in the last few years. But I mean, not to overcomplicate the answer to, to, to my, my answer to that question, I suppose what I mean is that really what's in a way more lasting, the, the, the visual bizarreness uh, and kind of grotesqueness and weirdness and alienness of the palace um, underlines, uh, exaggerates people's fascination with it uh, and their... Um, uh, their their obsession, their comp their palace complex, but what really attaches them to the palace is um, the medley of functions that are contained within it. So, what's actually really unusual about the palace is the fact that it contains such an extraordinary array of different types of public facilities: um, theaters, swimming pools. Uh, youth um, extracurricular centers of various kinds, the several university departments, uh, the Warsaw Municipal Assembly meets there. Um, there's this sort of quite re really remarkably sort of egalitarian mixture of different types of, of public functions, which um, somehow have managed to remain in the palace despite uh, the rest, much of the rest of the city and much of the rest of the country, uh, well, as you document in your work, but uh, as one can also step into the city of Warsaw to see that so much else of Warsaw has become privatized, but the palace somehow has not become privatized. It hasn't become um, restituted to pre-war owners and it hasn't become privatized in, in any other ways, despite attempts to, um, relatively serious attempts to privatize it or even to demolish it in the 90s. So. The, in a way, a condition of the of the of people's what really um, uh, binds people to the palace is the fact is, is its use value, what you could call its use value. The fact that they can still use it to swim in to send their children to learn how to do like shortwave radio or boat modeling. The fact that they can still go to the theater there. They can still get a cheap lunch uh, there. Um, that they can go to the viewing terrace either with their grandchildren or on a date. Um, and that, none of these functions cost very much compared to how much they cost in much of the rest of Warsaw. That combined with its like weird visual extravagance is what um, continues to bind people to it. And the fact that the Soviet Union no longer exists, um, although some people are in the Polish political scene uh, today seem to think that it does still exist, um, the, the fact that the USSR is such the, this, the, the giver of this gift um, for whom this act of giving was a kind of power uh, move. Um, 
no longer is you know in geopolitical exist existence that makes it much easier for the building to be to be loved than it was in the past yeah it sounds like one of the functions of the palace today is to give people what david harvey has called the right to the city that is public space that can be entered by anyone and made use of yeah. in various ways by various social groups um one of the things that uh, you say in your book is that this is not just a palace, but it is the palace complex. It's more than its building, and it's more than merely a material complex of the building plus the plaza. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what an anthropologist means by complex and why you think the anthropological, psychological, and architectural meanings of the idea of complex interact at the palace? Um, yeah, the, 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 these are all excellent questions. And I'm, I'm, I think I, I'm almost, uh, one of the things I'm concerned about is that I attach too many different meanings to the word complex in the book, but I'll try and navigate through them in as seamless a way as possible. I mean, anthropologists have used this idea of the something or other complex for a long time, uh, in obsolete Africanist uh, notion of the cattle complex of, of uh, East African societies that were supposedly obsessed with or uh, fixated on, on, on the importance of cattle for symbolic social and other reasons is one ways in which anthropologists have used this, this idea of the complex, which is also a probably a, a mutation of or a, or a kind of even a kind of vernacular use among anthropologists of the pre-existing psych psychiatric or, or rather psychoanalytical idea of the complex as a source of some kind of obsession. The most famous one of these obviously being Freud's Oedipus complex. And what's weird about the palace is that uh, it kind of speaks to both of these usages but also in terms of its functional and its symbolic importance for the city of Warsaw, but also beyond that, uh, its Soviet um, ideologues and their Polish um, fellow ideologues in the 1950s also had their own understanding of kompleksowość uh, or kompleksność in Russian, um, which meant something other than just complexity in English. It meant something more like com comprehensiveness. So what they aspired to in you know the in the sort of program statements for the palace, um, Lev Rudnyev, the chief architect of the palace, who was um, a Soviet architect, but also his Polish colleagues like Edmund Goldzamt and others, um, emphasized this idea of kompleksowość of the the the, uh, the the use and the importance of the palace uh, uh, being tied to the, the essence of the palace project being tied to the comprehensiveness of different types of functions that the palace was to contain within it. So it was to have functions that were social, that were cultural, that were ideological. It was to have an aesthetic relationship with the city, uh, a spatial, um, morphological kind of plugging into or domination of the city or the subordination of the city to itself. So it really was to function in the city at every, on a, on a comprehensive series of levels. And this is another way of, um, of understanding this complexity stroke comprehensiveness of the, of the palace. And so what's extraordinary today is that people are still in Warsaw, probably more so than they were before, 
interested in or um, keen to represent the palace in uh, popular culture, in advertising, in poems, uh, in everyday conversations, on social media, the palace is still this kind of dominant building of the city. And when people, uh, especially municipal, when architects or um, uh, politicians uh, talk about plans for what to do with the palace, how, how to make the palace more normal, or how to make Warsaw more normal, um, less pathological, less, com less complex ridden by overcoming the palace's domination over the city, they talk about this idea of the palace complex. So I take the title of the book uh, uh, from, uh, from, a, from a term that's, that has been used quite frequently by, by, by Warsaw's politicians to talk about a, seeming, a seemingly kind of pathological uh, spatial uh, uh, architectural dependence of, of, uh, of, of an entire city on only one building and on various attempts to kind of overcome that, comp that, that, uh, that, that psychopathology that is uh, uh, determined by this uh, obsession with, this, uh, with, with the palace. Um, even to the extent that in the book, um, people accuse each other of suffering from the palace complex or from some sort of complex, either a Russian complex or a provincial complex or a Warsaw complex of superiority in conversations where, where they're talking about the palace. And this word, I think, I mean, it's also interesting, this is kind of like a post-socialist world word. Um, Russians use this idea of the, of the complex as well to kind of, to, 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 to billet of each other in, in conversation. So the word complex is attached to, to various phenomena, I think, in various post-socialist places. I don't know, maybe that's just my idea because of my palace complex that I'm suffering from. But um, this, this even manifested itself in the extent to the, on the, the Polish edition of my book, which came out before the English edition because it was a much more direct translation of my PhD thesis, effectively. Um, I was described as a British Polish anthropologist writing about who has a, a particular advantage in discussing the palace because of my British upbringing, which means I, ha I am without complexes. Uh, so, yeah. And somehow, somehow your Britishness allowed you to escape the, the magnetic effects of, of the building. Yeah. Yeah, but which, it didn't, which it didn't. I, I, assure, I assure you that it didn't. You, you suffer as much as anyone else in Warsaw. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think one of the interesting things about this argument you're making about Kompleksovac is mm -hmm. that in, in the 1950s when the building was built, there were many people arguing that the Soviet Union was engaged in a totalitarian project by which they meant that the USSR or that communism writ large aimed at permeating every aspect of human social existence. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder if you would say or you would agree with the statement that the palace is itself totalitarian or part of a to totalizing project? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't, I suppose as, ma uh, as many sc scholars of post-socialism or of, of the socialist world or of Eastern Europe, I, I kind of avoid <laughs> that word. Uh, so I just don't use it um, in order to not have to confront the question that the really difficult question that you've just asked. So, um, but I'll give it a go. 
I mean, I also don't use the word in that, the, the word totalitarianism um, in my book, but I do talk about um, the totality that the palace establishes around itself. Uh, and there's, there's no doubt that the um, desire to control or to exert a dominance over the city through one building was something that was remarkable. Like it was articulated by Soviet and by Polish ideologues of architecture and by architects almost with a kind of refreshing kind of naivete. Almost they were very open about the fact that Warsaw was supposed to be subordinated to the palace and that the palace was supposed to be totally present in, um, in the lives of, uh, of, of, of Varsovians. So certainly, um, I mean, the other, the other kind of anthropological use of totality, the, the kind of the Marcel Mauss use of the idea, of the, the Marcel Mauss idea of the total social fact, right? That the, the gift, the, anthropolo the, the anthropological theorization of gifts as being present total social facts because they're present in uh, the juridical sphere and the aesthetic sphere and the economic sphere, et cetera, rather than just in, the, in some sort of isolated sphere of gift giving. That's another, I think there are ways of conceiving the, the total existence of the palace that go beyond strictly a, um, a theory of uh, a, an idea of the Soviet project as being a totalitarian one. But certainly, I mean, it was certainly a, a project that had aspirations towards totality. And that totality was expressed sometimes in the most kind of bizarrely naked and uncamouflaged ways, almost kind of honest ways in inverted commas. And I suppose the kind of rambunctiously aggressive um, figure of the palace in the in the sphere of the city is a pretty clear expression of that of that kind of total, totalizing um, ambition. I don't know whether whether I love I love your description of it as rambunctiously aggressive, right? It it has yeah. certain, a, a quite a solidity that's very domineering, mm. but it also has this kind of unruly nature where it's just branching itself out into all the space around it. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow, I guess maybe that's the source of its complicated beauty and ugliness mm -hmm. um, that, that goes together. There have been many attempts to tear the palace down, and you document some of those, and you document these other attempts to build a suite of buildings around it to kind of mask it in mm -hmm. urban space. So. I wonder if you could talk about some of these failed attempts and why they failed. I mean, yeah, I, I think that probably, I don't know, you, you were in, in Poland in the 90s and I suppose you may have been witness to, I don't know whether you ever came across discussions about demolishing the palace. Oh yeah, uh, they were, did, they were right. commonly held um, both in Warsaw and you know, even in the hinterlands like Rzeszów. People even talked though. about, people talked about tearing the palace down in order to build capitalist skyscrapers. And was this your, this was your informants in, in Alima were, were having these, these conversations? Yeah, about tearing yeah. The palace down? Well, uh, mostly because they, they, uh, the building they talked about in opposition to the palace was the Marriott, right. which was new then, right? I think it was built in 90 or 91. Um, anyway, it was built right about the time yeah. of the big change. And, and, and the Marriott Brigade was 
the name for all of the Americans and Europeans who were rushing in to be mm -hmm. part of the gold rush, the economic gold rush of those times. And so in that yeah. sense, in that sense, the Marriott stood for a kind of wild capitalism that was the antithesis yeah. of the Palace of Culture, a, a kind of maybe uncultured capitalism that was was roaring. And the, you also mentioned the, the bazaar that existed around the, the base of the palace in those years, yeah. uh, right? Uh, um, Balcerovich Place, as we called yeah. them then. So, <laughs> yeah. um, jokingly or seriously, it was hard to yeah. tell. But um, but that that too was this idea of counterposing some mm. kind of unfettered capitalism to the palace's supposed socialism. Um, so yeah, the um, the Maria is a fascinating example of a building that is generally associated with this kind of nineteen nineties wild capitalist moment, um, but in fact was, um, was constructed in the 1980s as a, as a joint venture between the Polish state, the lot, the Polish state airline, I believe it was a Swedish developer and Marriott Hotels International. So this building, which was supposedly this, uh, this, this pure uh, representation of, uh, of, of a new type of capitalism that came from nowhere was, was, was something that was already kind of hatched by communists in the 1980s and was part of a urban development plan that actually was conceived of in the 1970s connected to the Warsaw Central train station and a whole series of skyscrapers that arose in direct uh, response to the palace. I mean, actually, the, the, there's also a fascinating quote from the architect of the Marriott saying that because the height of the Marriott and its adjacent building is um, directly corresponds to the height of the palace's central tower. It's one segment of the palace lower than its central tower. And there's a quote from the architect Jerzy Skrzypczak, uh, which he confirmed to me in a, which, which I sort of confirmed to me in, a, in a, an interview with him, that he dreamed one day of, of building a kind of pyramid on top of the Marriott um, structure after Poland became free so that it would be taller than the Palace of Culture. And then I asked him, well, did you, that he, you had this dream in the 80s, once Poland became free, did you want to realize it? And then he said sort of, well, no, not really. Once Poland became, well, after communism fell, I didn't really care anymore. Uh, which also illustrates that, you know, some of the interesting ways that people uh, related to the Palace of Culture and the the way in which negative um, identifications with it were so much stronger when communism still existed than when uh, when it fell. Um, but the bazaar and the uh, and I mean it's really interesting to hear you too about the people's um, the the way in which the discussion about demolishing the palace was present and was palpable in the nineties among your informants in the in the 2000s, I wasn't in Poland in the 90s because I left Poland in 1990 with my, with my family and moved to the UK. Uh, and by the time I came back for my field work in the 2000s, in the late 2000s, people didn't really talk about demolishing the palace. If somebody, if, if somebody mentioned this idea that the palace should be demolished, then they were kind of treated like a, 
like a sort of like a fanatic or like a, or like a person who was divorced from reality. Although there were always the the the, the foreign minister at the time, Radoslav Sikorsky, would in the two, late two thousands, early two thousand and tens, would regularly bring this idea up in a kind of troll-like manner randomly at the end of his parliamentary appearances. So he'd talk about something completely different, the, the imperative to export more Polish apples to Belarus to promote freedom there or something. And then he'd follow that up with a, with a kind of random invocation. Of, by the way, I also think the Palace of Culture is a disgusting Soviet um, boot and it has to be, and it has to be destroyed. Um, but generally speaking, I think this, this idea of destroying the palace was, was less and less commonly um, uh, in, witnessed or encountered in the 2000s and 2010s, uh, and the palace became more, of a, more and more of a popular building and more and more of a genuinely liked building, a building to which people had um, affections that were positive. Uh, 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 a, 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 a building, um, you know, which, which um, elicited a, a positive and a sort of uh, a kind of fixation rather than just a negative one. And this was the case until uh, until 2015, 2016, and and uh, and the appearance of of the current um, a Polish government when the conversation about the palace took on a took on a different kind of um, uh, atmosphere. So what was that change? What is the different atmosphere now? I mean, this, yeah, this is a whole, this is, you know, the way this, this, uh, I suppose you could say that the, the entire, the sort of neoliberal order that um, was described, that has been described by not just anthropologists of post-socialism, but anthropologists in general, you know, as referring to the 90s and 2000s, and that you, you know, the, the road on which Poland is, supposed to get back on that you described in privatizing Poland in th this road is perceived to have been closed in 2015 with the arrival or redirected radically with the arrival of of the peace of the law and justice government in its um, current and more radical incarnation uh, and um, uh, a, a much more radical and a different kind of reckoning with the past, but also with the West and with Poland's uh, economic as well as its political and its social identity uh, was kind of launched by the by the current regime. And I mean, this is obviously a huge conversation that that um, that one can talk about the current uh, government in Poland for our, and and its various. Um, strange and and fascinating and uh, terrible uh, initiatives for many hours. But what was what was curious is um, that one of the, the the palace became a target for the current administration for the current Polish regime quite early on. So one of the first things that they did um, was to. Uh, uh, the, the the current Polish government is very interested in. Um, stamping its um, authority over areas of public life that were previously you know, previously sacrosanct, considered to be sacrosanct from government intervention. So, for example, the judiciary and the public media. And one of the first things that the, the, the conversation about the judiciary is a huge, also parallel conversation, but one of the first things that they did was to replace the um, director of the Polish state media with a 
with a, with a figure, uh, Jacek Kurski, who's very uh, closely identified with the, with the current government and is a kind of notorious spin doctor. He's kind of like the Surkov or the Steve Bannon of the, of the Polish uh, right. And, his, um, and he was nominated as the, as the new uh, director of Polish State TV. And the first thing he officially declared as director of Polish State TV uh, in a Twitter post, typically, is that the Palace of Culture, uh, this symbol of, this was his words, uh, sort of sexualized words, the symbol of the Soviet rape of Poland, um, has to be eradicated from the symbolic sphere. And as a result, I am going to remove the Palace of Culture from the, um, from the, uh, from the main Polish flagship, a Polish state TV flagship news program. So when the news presenter speaks, uh, on TVP1, which is the main kind of the, the, the flagship uh, channel. Uh, there used to be a background of Warsaw behind the newscaster and the dominating element of that background was uh, the Palace of Culture. And one of the first things that uh, Kurski did as the director of Polish State TV was to replace the Palace of Culture with the Royal Castle uh, in Warsaw which also has a clock on it. The Palace of Culture has had a clock on it since 2000, and the Royal Castle has a clock on it too. So it serves a kind of similar equivalent function to the palace, but it's considered to be more kind of nationally uh, correct. Forgetting, of course, that the Royal Castle in Warsaw was also destroyed during the war and rebuilt by the communist government. So effectively replacing it with another, with another communist building. And then this led this this uh, kind of culminated in a in a in a in a, in a whole discussion uh, in 2017 and 2018 about demolishing the palace as a kind of um, as a this is to quote the deputy minister of defense uh, a cool present for the hundredth anniversary of Polish independence and a kind of fun exercise for our soldiers to participate in the in this kind of ritual dismantling. Of the of the palace, and this was a this was a kind of media uh, uh, like uh, th this this idea of demolishing the palace or dismantling it for to, for the celebration of Polish independence kind of went viral. I think it was towards the, the end of two thousand and seventeen, but then was was uh, was swiftly <coughs> dropped. So I mean, in many ways, not just in this sense, in many ways, the palace has become has begun to occupy a much more kind of agonistic, a much more tense, a much more intense space in the in the Polish political conversation in the last few years than it did uh, in, the, um, at, you know, in the first decade, in the first decade and a half of the 21st century. Yeah, which speaks to this ongoing, very complex relationship between uh, national, nationalist populism and the socialist project and the ways in which they overlap and, and are antagonistic is not always predictable. Um, so I find it very interesting that the castle was substituted as if monarchy is somehow a better symbol than, than state socialism for a, for a, a fundamentally pop populist regime. Um, one of the things I, one of the little factoids I found fascinating and not entirely explicable in the book was that there was a really substantial gender difference in how people respond to the palace. Um, you say that while 57% of men in Warsaw described themselves as positively disposed to the palace, more than 73% of women do. Why do you think there's a gender difference in the ways people think about the palace of culture? 
Yeah, this is this is something that's also an interesting kind of methodological um, question, because where, whereas most of my my field work that I carried out in Warsaw was kind of participant observation, anthropological field work, I was employed in the palace as an intern in the palace administration and carried out interviews and talked to people and blah and you know participated in the in the daily existence of the palace. Also, towards the end of my research. Um, kind of bandwagoning on the popularity of the palace as a, as a kind of hot topic in the media, uh, I carried out a very kind of unscientific um, survey ab uh, about concerning public attitudes to the palace that was answered by a sufficient quantity of respondents, over 5,000 respondents, which you know, allowed me by asking demographic questions to kind of control for the total unscientific uh, uh, element of the of the of the way in which the survey was carried out because it was an online survey online online survey and to and to sort of try to make some sense of the figures and and because of this i mean i wasn't expecting this um figure to to arise but i was this is one of the things that the survey allowed me to see that i wouldn't have noticed had i not carried out the survey uh and comparing the ways in which I mean, unsurprisingly, left-wing people were more likely to like, people who identified as having left-wing political opinions uh, were more likely to have a positive disposition towards the palace than people who identified as having right-wing political opinions. Uh, but one of the things that was the, the most striking difference in a way was uh, the fact that not only were um, women more likely, people who identified as women more likely to be positively disposed towards the palace. They were also uh, three times less likely, around two and a half times, three times less likely to want the palace to be demolished. And uh, men were also three times more likely to, to have the opinion that Warsaw needs to have a taller building than the palace built in it. <laughs> and uh, uh, I mean, and you know, the, 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 the first, obviously the first kind of explanation that springs to mind here is some kind of psychopathological one that Warsaw, that the men of Warsaw suffer from um, some sort of phallic envy in relation to the palace and, and that this accounts for their, for their, for their, um, for their desire, for their greater, for, for their relatively greater desire to have it demolished or, or, or accompanied or replaced by a taller building. But actually, I think that, um, really what this is about is uh, a gender um, um, a gender dynamic to radical right-wing politics in Poland. So you see this too in the most recent parliamentary elections where Confederacja, which is a um, radical right-wing libertarian party, uh, horrendously misogynistic, homophobic, uh, xenophobic, really expressing opinions to the right to the you know substantially to the right of of trump um a party that had been kind of out of parliament for for for, for some time they got around and i'd have to check my exact figures here so so don't uh, take these figures exactly as you know uh, representing the absolute truth that i think they got six percent of the votes overall um they got um I think twice or three times more votes among men than among women. Uh, and in the category of men aged 
18 to 30, or in the category of young men, 18 to 34, 18 to 30, something like that, Confederacia got over 30%, 35% of the vote. So young men were the most likely to vote for a party that was really nastily um, woman-hating, xenophobic, uh, and also uh, very radically, very kind of fanatically anti-communist. Anti, anti and actually having seen, you know, combined uh, um, juxtaposed these findings from my survey and from the election with looking back at conversations that I had in Warsaw, the very few people who, as opposed to in the 90s, by the 2010s, when I was carrying out my fieldwork, which was before this current turn in Polish politics, the very few people who I met who really virulently expressed their desire for the palace to be demolished were mostly young right-wing men. Um, so I think, I think that this, uh, this kind of, um, identification of the, uh, this, this, this dislike for the palace among men and in particular among young men, uh, can be, and I'm sure that the, the psychopathological explanation for it could be interestingly explored as well. But I think that without, it's without a doubt that the, the, the kind of political, it's, it's identification as a left-wing building is, is the reason for it. And it has become and an identification of it, obviously, with the, with the communist past. But it's not just an identification with the communist past, because the palace has also, in a way, become a locus for uh, resistance, uh, or a locus for, maybe resistance is too strong a word, a locus for protest in the last few years against the, against the, um, against the current government. You um, end your book, actually, with the story of a man who, who seems to follow the plot of a minor apocalypse and immolates himself in front of the palace um, as a form of protest. Can you tell us what that story is and, and why the palace factored in as a place to stage it? Yeah, so I mean, this this is um, this happened in two thousand and eighteen um, uh, in October. Um, uh, a um, middle-aged man from a, a provincial uh, city in in the south of Poland in Silesia traveled to Warsaw um, with the expressed intent with, with, with the with the you know with the with the intention of setting himself on fire. Uh, in front of the, on the steps of the Palace of Culture, as you, as you observe in a way that uncannily um, referenced and acted out a scene from a very well-known um, uh, Polish book from, from the 1970s, uh, A Minor Apocalypse, which also became a film, but also acted out um, a, another self-immolation in 1968 of Richard Siewiec, who was who, who, burnt, who set himself on fire in the um, 10th anniversary in a stadium in Warsaw in 1968 in protest at the uh, Polish army's participation in the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia. In that, um, uh, in, in, in the case of Richard Siewiec in 1968, the, the uh, Siewiec described himself in, um, in a massive manifesto that he recorded before his immolation as a as a zwykły szary człowiek, an ordinary grey person, and this um, self-description of a zwykły uh, szary człowiek, a grey person, was also repeated by um, 
uh, repeated in 2018 by the man who set himself on fire in front of the palace. So there was this kind of extraordinary, um, sort of symbolically, a historically charged act of, 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 of self-burning, which took place in front of the palace. Um, and we, also this act was accompanied by the distribution of a manifesto, a printed political manifesto, which, uh, which he um, threw into the crowd of onlookers while playing uh, a, a well-known 1990s protest song on a, on a radio that he had bought with him. Um, so it was, an, and, and the, the manifesto that he distributed was explicitly um, directed at the politics of the of the current ruling party, so that it was directly um, uh, it, it, it directly sort of implicated peace, the law and justice party in a in a kind of project of in an authoritarian or you could even say totalitarian project of wanting to suppress the independence of the judiciary of the media, but also in in a, in a, in a project of of other hating of xenophobia. Of misogyny and of, and of homophobia, so it was really a, a very complex, comprehensive—you could almost say—condemnation um, uh, uh, of the government, which was uh, uh, which accompanied this act of what, of what wasn't of what was a suicide because he died uh, two weeks later in in hospital after being after being um, he was taken uh, away by ambulance, but but he succumbed to his burns. A couple of weeks later, and so after after this, there's still a shrine to uh, to this to this Vikushadatovic, to the ordinary grey person uh, outside the palace of culture today, and that shrine, in some way, has been kind of appropriated and maintained and kept uh, by the current Warsaw municipality, which uh, uh, well, by the by, the current Warsaw mayor and the previous Warsaw mayor are from a political party that is directly opposed to the to the from a kind of, of also a liberal but a kind of more socially liberal party um, uh, to the uh, to the current government. So, I mean, it's an extra the 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 the, the this this act of uh, ritual suicide in front of the Palace of Culture was so replete. Gr gruesomely repeat with uh, symbolism that is uh, comprehensible to most Poles or to many or to many Polish people who would have been, uh, you know, who read the news about this attack. Um, and it's difficult to imagine a, a, a place where it could have taken place other than the Palace of Culture. So it really, re it was an act of kind of re-entering the, the palace into this, into this kind of really intense and really tragic kind of political conversation. And all, all of this is underlined too by the dilapidated condition of the public space around the, around the palace. So Parade Square is um, still a kind of uh, a semi-derelict terrain. None of these grand plans for surrounding the palace with higher skyscrapers or for kind of making this terrain normal again have come to fruition. And so this act of ritual self-immolation surrounded by this chaos, you know, really uh, emphasizes the, the kind of, the, the, the sort of tragic element and the political element of the, of the, of the palace complex, which was, which I, I reflect on briefly in, in the epilogue to the book, but which simply wasn't there in the same way when I was doing my, when I was doing my research in 2010, 2011. Yeah, it sounds like, the palace means so many things to so many people, so many different things. And, and is a symbol that gets 
repurposed and juxtaposed to other and, and new ideas, um, that it will continue to be a meaningful symbol in the city landscape for the future, that, that it is not confined to the socialist past, but is kind of a living, vibrant symbol that continues to engage in political debate with its surroundings. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think inevitably, yeah, uh, unless it gets, well, I mean, <laughs> I suppose you could say unless it gets demolished, but then if, it, if, if, you know, if this act of demolition is attempted or takes place, then I suppose in a, at least temporarily that would only increase its, increase its kind of presence in, the, in, in public political discourse. So let's see. Michal Morawski, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you are our first guest on the podcast and we had a fantastic conversation. Um, your book will be part of an upcoming book club through the Polish Studies Center. So we hope that we'll get people to read the book and in, have a conversation with you later on this year. Thanks again. Thanks very much, Elizabeth.